0: Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And Jesus, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, sow your seed among us today, that it might take root and bear fruit 30-, 60-, 100-fold in the lives of your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. There are certain postures that we take in life. We sit, we stand, we walk, we lie down. We rise up, and we do it all over again. Postures become a normal part of our life, a cycle that happens continually. Sometimes we hardly think about the postures that we're taking or what we're doing until our bodies tell us what we're doing. Not every posture even is a good posture for you, perhaps, You think about the times that you get down on your hands and knees to play with your grandchildren, only to find you need someone to help you get up again. Postures, how we hold ourselves, are done in a number of ways, each done many times throughout our days. We often do not consider our various postures too much, But there's another way we use that word posture. We use it with our physical bodies, how we stand or sit or lie down. But we also use one's posture of an attitude toward something. What is your response to an idea or a statement or a movement? Is it a friendly, welcoming, loving posture? Is it a hostile, standoffish posture? even indifferent posture. Would we ever see that our physical posture and our inner posture might need to meet, might need to go together, so that the posture of our bodies, this physical representation, is showing what's going on on the inside of our hearts? We can see this in our children, can't we? The child who stands with hands on hips or arms folded, scowl on their face, their physical posture mimics their heart posture, their attitude, their emotions. The inner self, the heart of that child. The physical posture says, I'm angry. And so the heart posture says, I'm angry. Or the child who runs to you and throws their arm around your leg, their arms around your leg as you walk through the door. Again, they are saying through their physical posture what their heart is saying. I missed you. I'm glad to see you. I love you. Our postures can be very relational. The posture you take towards someone else will affect how you relate to that person. And the inner heart posture can often not be hidden for very long. If your inner heart posture towards someone is negative, you can try to smile and grin and bear it, but it will eventually come out. So we ask ourselves a very important question this morning. What is your posture toward God? What is the overall posture toward God... That your life expresses. What has been your posture toward God this week? Have you expressed that inner posture that you have of your heart toward God with your physical body? In what way have you lived your life before Him? And what does that say about your inner posture towards God? We remember when the Lord met Moses in Exodus 3, and the posture that the Lord told Moses to take there when he met him in that burning bush. You remember the posture? God says, Moses, Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses, your posture of standing barefoot before me is to be a reflection of the inner heart posture of relating to me in my holiness. You will respect my holiness. You will reverence my holiness. You will not bring any shame or disgrace upon my holiness. You will not abuse my holiness with the commonness of your sandals and all the filth that your sandals would bring into my presence. It's in this posture then that Moses asked God this question. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? It is here that God reveals his name to Moses, his great name that encapsulates his whole person, his whole nature, all that he is. You want to know who God is? You have to know His name. The name that He reveals to you. Not the name that you give to Him. It's not the name that we have ingeniously thought up. It's a name that comes from the mind of God. A name that reveals His own greatness and glory. And it's here, out of the burning bush, that God declares his name to Moses when he says, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What is God saying in that, that name, I am who I am? He is saying, I have been who I have always been. He is saying, I am presently who I am. He is saying, I will be who I always will be. The greatness of the Lord, whose faithfulness is known in the past, in the present, and in the future. This is the sovereign Lord who declares that he, he himself, is his own existence. Nothing gave him his existence. He always has been, He always will be. He has no beginning and no end. He is the eternal God. He will never stop or cease to exist because He does not depend upon anything outside of Himself to sustain Him and His existence. He is the only one who is completely independent. And He is completely self-sustaining. And His declaration as the great I Am impacts how we relate to Him. We cannot and must not relate to Him as we relate to one another. No, He is altogether set apart and different. And so our posture is completely changed when we come into His presence. For He is the Creator. He is the covenant-keeping Lord. He is the foundation of life. He is the fountain of life. Any hope for life, any hope for existence, any hope in this created realm depends upon the one who is the infinite and eternal I am. To base your life on anything else, on any other foundation, that life will crumble and fall because it is only ever a temporary foundation. So what happens with the coming of Jesus? We've been asking ourselves this question, who is Jesus as we're in the Advent season? When we come to the Gospel of John, we see Jesus take this name, this name that God declared to Moses from that burning bush. Jesus takes this name upon himself. Over and over and over again, we see Jesus reveal himself as the great I am in the Gospel of John. Do you remember some of those I am statements in the Gospel of John? Jesus says, I myself am the bread of life. Jesus says, I myself am the light of the world. Jesus says, I myself am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, before Abraham was, I am. You notice how all of these statements are relational statements. They change how we approach Jesus. How are we to think about him? We are to think about him with the truth that he heralded in these simple statements And they completely reorient our whole lives so that now our whole lives are centered around Jesus. Our lives revolve around Him. In these statements, we see that He is everything. He is the infinite and eternal Creator and covenant-keeping Lord. And the culmination of these I am statements come to us in John 18. This is the climax, the apex. Where does it all take place? Well, John ushers us into a garden in the dark of night. Jesus had just left the upper room with his disciples And it says, after crossing the Kidron Valley, they enter the garden. Sometimes we come to details like this, and we wonder, why did John write that? Like, look at verse 1 there. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. So, the brook Kidron stream. That ran on the edge of the city of Jerusalem. It was part of what was known as the Kidron Valley. So this little brook, this little stream ran in the midst of this valley. So they go through this valley. But why does John have to tell us this? Why is that important? What John is doing is he is, I think intentionally, drawing our minds to another king. Do you know there was another king who crossed the brook Kidron? If you have your Bibles, just turn back to 2 Samuel for a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. 2 Samuel 15, 23. We're jumping into a story here. This is a story, the event of when David is having to leave Jerusalem because of his son Absalom. What does it say in 2 Samuel 15, 23? And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Here is the great king David, who's having to leave his capital city, and his throne, and his palace, because of his son Absalom, who is seeking to overthrow him and take his throne. He's having to leave Jerusalem, and he has to flee by going over the brook Kidron. He's leading the people out into the wilderness. But what does Jesus do? Jesus does, in a sense, the opposite. He doesn't lead people into the wilderness. He leads his disciples into the garden. This king, Jesus, isn't fleeing. This king is doing precisely what his father wants him to do. He isn't running away. He's running towards saving his people and so Jesus crosses the brook Kidron enters into this garden with his disciples they knew this garden well this is the garden of Gethsemane Jesus had spent much time there with his disciples he had taught them there he had tended and cared for their souls there This garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, was a safe place for them as they knew it. But tonight, the garden would not be a safe place. It would become a battlefield, a place of confrontation, a place of questioning, a place of betrayal, how the Garden of Gethsemane changed that dark night just like The Garden of Eden changed when a snake came slithering toward Eve. God's goodness challenged. God's authority rebelled against. And ultimately, God was betrayed by sinful man. There in the darkness of the garden, the mob moves towards Jesus. Led by Judas. Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Who made up this mob? So there's this mob that's moving towards Jesus. Who made up this mob besides Judas? There was a band of Roman soldiers, and there were officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And here's this mob moving towards Jesus. They have lanterns and torches in their hands to show them the way to Jesus. They are armed with weapons, and they are seeking one person, and they are ready for a fight. They are willing to take him by force if they had to. It might be bloody. There might be loss of life. But they are so determined that they will stop at nothing to arrest Jesus. And John goes on to tell us, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. The, event, the events that are about to unfold are not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus had already foretold to his disciples what would happen to him. So Jesus was not caught off guard. He was not shocked. Here is the good shepherd coming forward ready to lay down his life for his sheep. Notice what is about to happen to Jesus. Jesus doesn't run away from the difficulty. He doesn't hide himself away. He doesn't try to escape. He came forward. He steps into the light. He reveals himself to the mob, to those who are against him, to those who hate him, to those who want to betray him, to those who want to see him dead, and he asked them a very poignant and a very revealing question Whom do you seek? Are you seeking someone? Maybe that's a question that you could ask yourself today. What's more, though, we want to ask ourselves why are you seeking? There's a little clever saying that we maybe say this time of year or see other people say this time of year. It says this wise men still seek him. You heard that or seen that? Well, these certainly weren't wise men. (laughs) Yet they were still seeking Jesus. Why? Not because they desired to know him, not because they loved him. They sought to arrest Jesus. They wanted to deny Jesus, to reject Jesus, to disgrace Jesus, and to ultimately kill Jesus. They hated Jesus, and fundamentally, they did not know who Jesus truly was, and they certainly didn't believe who Jesus truly was. And so they came, and they said, we are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe there's a sense of, That name being derogatory. You remember what Nathaniel says? When they come to him and they say to Nathaniel, We found the Messiah. And Nathaniel says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Like he came from the other side of the tracks. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. They had no idea where their search would actually lead them. There is still the same danger today. People could seek Jesus for all of the wrong reasons. They seek him to discredit him. They seek him to show that he is false, that he is a fake, or that he is a sham. They seek him because they are against him and not because they are for him. As John would later say, truly there are many antichrists that have come. Let us not be so naive to think that that does not happen in our world today. Even at Christmas. Maybe there's another problem. Maybe you would seek a Jesus of your own imagination. A Jesus that Makes you feel good. A Jesus that speaks in soft whispers. A Jesus that is always pleasant, never too excited, and never cross. A Jesus who always tells you exactly what you want to hear. A Jesus who tells you deep down that you really are a good person. A Jesus who ultimately doesn't have to die or rise again from the dead because he was just misunderstood. Aren't these most of the pictures that you see of Jesus when they, people depict him? You seek your own personal Jesus. If you seek the person you would like Jesus to be, it's not based upon the truth. And you're deceiving and deluding, and confused, and lost. It must line up with how the Bible presents Jesus. The mob was searching for Jesus of Nazareth, but they found the great I Am. That is what Jesus said to them. I read it very literally when I read it. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am, that is no ordinary statement, that is an extraordinary statement, that is not like a teacher in a classroom calling out your name and you saying, here, present, present, no, this is much different this is a statement of Jesus true identity it's a proclamation of his greatness and of his glory how do I know that this is no ordinary statement look at what it says in verse six when Jesus said to them I am what happened they drew back and they fell to the ground Thank you, Jesus. clearly this was no ordinary statement I don't know about you but I've never said a word and someone respond in that way That is to say, what we see the people doing here, this mob, they drew back away from Jesus and they fell down, and I think they fell down, on their faces. Notice the posture. It's not a falling backward, it is rather a falling forwards, falling upon their faces before the revelation of the great I Am. It is undeniable that such an action, such an involuntary posture, meant they came to realize that they were in the presence of divinity. They were in the presence of God himself. In fact, this is the action we see in the Bible over and over and over again when they encounter the presence of God. Listen to Ezekiel one twenty-eight. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Happens, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Or Ezekiel 44, verse 4 says this Then he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I fell on my face. Daniel 10, verse 9. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground. Acts 9, 4. This is the conversion of Saul. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? and revelation 1:17 when i saw him i fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying fear not i am the first and the last jesus declaration as the great i am revealed himself to be the creator and covenant keeping lord to judas to the Roman soldiers, and to the temple police who made up that mob. And in that moment, there was a reaction, a change that happened. It was a change of relationships in that moment. The reaction is a small snapshot of the proper response when you meet the great I Am. So what did their posture show about what changed in that moment that Jesus spoke those two small words? We can follow along in your bulletin if you find that easier. Three points for us this morning. When Jesus is revealed as the great I am, it changes how we relate to ourselves. It changes how we relate to ourselves. In that instant, the mob who came to confront Jesus were confronted with a more fundamental question that they needed to deal with. As those words of Jesus made them fall on their faces, all of the sudden they were left asking the question, who am I? What is my identity? Notice how their agenda, their desires, what they had come to do was, albeit momentarily, yet nonetheless, it was put on hold. They were stopped dead in their tracks. There, the mob in an instant was humbled. Whatever pride, selfish ambition, personal preference was driving them and motivating them, all of that went out of the window as they lay with their face in the dirt. For at that moment, they were confronted with who they really were in the presence of God. There, with lanterns and torches in their hand, they sought out Jesus, thinking that he might be hiding in some nook or cranny of the garden. But instead, the light of the world found them, and the light of his glory shone on them so that they could not deny who they were, sinners and rebels against the holy God." They were those who did not even deserve to stand in the presence of the great I Am. And all of our evil deeds are exposed by this light, and it should humble us. It should make us think again about who we are, and it should lead us to think again about our sin. It should lead us to repentance and faith. Listen to what Jesus had told the Jews earlier, John eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Here is the mob, dead in their sins. Would they believe in the great I am? They were committed to one sin. And that one sin leads to many individual sins. So what is that? They were committed to the sin of unbelief and that unbelief led to rejection of Jesus Christ we will not believe because we do not believe we will reject Jesus Christ with all that we are and it's that sin that leads to all of the other sins in people's lives how are we to relate to ourselves in the light of Jesus being the great I am Luke 9 23 through 24 Jesus says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and let him take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it deny yourself take up your cross how often once Twice, take up your cross daily. Daily, you are going to have to die to yourself. Daily, you are going to have to sacrifice yourself. Daily, you are going to be on the path of death that leads to life. And the life that you get The life that you lose is the life that is saved. It's not a mediocre life. It's not a miserable life. No, it's eternal life. It's abundant life. It's a life that Jesus gives through him stepping into the light that night and saying, I am. And being arrested and tried and mocked and going to the cross and dying. When Jesus is revealed as the great I am, it changes how we relate to ourselves. But number two, it also changes how we relate to the world. When Jesus is revealed as the great I am, it changes how we relate to the world. Generally speaking, when we look at this mob, it's made up of three groups of people. First, you have the Roman soldiers. You had officers from the chief priests or Pharisees, something like temple police. And you had Judas, who stood among them. Notice it says that very specifically. What side was Judas on? Judas stood among them. And all of these related to the world in a certain way. But when Jesus spoke, it changed for a moment. Look at the Roman soldiers They were committed to following the Roman Empire. Caesar was their Lord. Their allegiance was to Caesar and to the Roman government. They were Gentile men committed to the way of the world. They were part of the nations that raged against the Son of God. Look at the officers sent by the chief priests and Pharisees. They were committed to a righteousness that they thought they could find in themselves. Their allegiance was to worship, which prided itself on the commandments of men, but whose hearts were far from God. They were committed to all of the religious services and sacrifices and rites that went along with Judaism. They were committed to seeing the temple sustained. They were against someone who came and overturned the tables in the temple and said that the temple would be destroyed. These were Jewish men committed to the way of the world. Look at Judas. He was committed to following his own way. His allegiance was to his own pleasure, his own comfort, and his own greed. He was a Jewish man, a close follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, handpicked by Jesus himself, yet he was the son of destruction who was bent on destroying the author of life. He was a Jewish man, Committed to the way of the world. And all of these allegiances changed in the moment that Jesus said, I am. These men of the world, for a moment, saw the emptiness of the world's ways. For a moment, they saw the lie of this world. For a moment, they could not continue in the hatred of the world. But they had to bow before the true king. Jesus has changed how they relate to the world for that moment. Has Jesus changed how you relate to the world? Are you holding on to the values of the world? Do you cherish what the world cherishes? Do you live as the world lives? Is there any difference between you and the world? Are you chasing after All that the world has to offer, all the while betraying the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are a Christian, the world will not love you. Let me say it again. If you are a Christian, the world will not love you. people whose allegiance is to this world will not love you. What is the response of the world to the disciples to the disciples and the followers of Jesus Christ? It hates them because they are not of the world. This is what Jesus has just prayed and it's the very reason why He has given us the word of God. Listen to John 17, 14. I gave them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Do you remember the parable of the the sower and the seeds and the sower goes out and he's throwing seeds on different soils. There in Mark 4, verse 18, we're told about some of the seeds these are the seeds that fall on thorns and how does jesus interpret this for us mark 4:18 and others are the ones sown among thorns they are those who hear the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. They heard the word, but everything in the world choked it out. Wait a second. Maybe, just maybe, we can be friends with the world and god maybe we can straddle the fence maybe maybe we can serve two masters maybe just maybe we can make this work all of you radical fanatical christians you just don't get it of course you are going to be hated by the world but not me i'm going to find a way through I'm going to find a way to create a friendship with the world. What does James say? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is no way forward. You can't straddle the fence. There aren't two ways. You cannot serve two masters. Our allegiance, our whole allegiance, our complete devotion is to be to Christ and to Christ alone. There is not eternal meaning or lasting significance or value that we will ever gain from the world. Ever. Period. Full stop. Listen to Mark eight thirty six and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? There's nothing you can give in return for your soul. When we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are saying we are not of this world. We do not belong to this world. We are not enslaved in its rebellion against God. But we belong to Christ we are his and his alone number three when Jesus is revealed as the great I am it changes how we relate to him it changes how we relate to him the mob thought that night that they would arrest Christ. But first, they were arrested by Him. (laughs) This is the only way to truly know Christ. It is to be arrested by Him. Not for a moment like these men, but to be arrested by Christ whole heart, mind, and soul. You are no closer to knowing Him if you think that you can arrest Him, take hold of Him, or tame Him. He is the untamable I Am, and He must arrest you. There, In that moment... As the mob is falling on their faces in the dirt before Jesus, they get a glimpse, an accurate picture of who Jesus really is. And so they respond to him and relate to him in the way that they were designed by God to respond and relate to him. They have never been more human than they are at that moment with their faces in the dirt. They laid on the ground, prostate before the great I am, worshiping him. That is right. That is what they should have done when they found Jesus. At once, and in a moment, their physical posture and their inner posture toward Christ aligned with the truth of who Jesus really is. What is your posture towards Christ? What is your heart posture toward Him at this moment? is, Is it a heart that is soft toward Christ? Is it a heart that desires Him? Is it a heart that is submissive to him, a heart that is given to him, which desires to obey and follow him wherever he leaves? Is it a heart that is aligned to the heart of the king so that through your love you testify to the world that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is it a heart that is committed uh, committed to worshiping him in a way that he has described for his gathered people? And what is it, what is it that detours you from remaining in a prostrated posture before Jesus? What is it, what is it that, again, detours you or takes you away from the proper posture that you are to have before Christ? Could be a mundane thing. Are you too busy? Does busyness get in the way, crowd out that posture? Is it the affairs of this world? Is it things that you have put in your life because you want them, but they're not what the Lord wants? They're not what He desires or what pleases Him. When was the last time you got on your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I know for some that might be a physical impossibility. So even though you might not physically be able... It should still be the posture of your heart. But what about you who are physically able? When was the last time you got on your knees before the Lord? When was the last time your desire for Him was so great that your physical posture had to match? the inner posture of your heart that you had to express that to him maybe you've never you've never gotten on your knees because your heart posture has never desired to worship Christ maybe you've never known him as the great i am But now when you hear him say, I am, for the first time you know that he is Lord. For the first time you want to worship him. For the first time you see yourself as you really are, a sinner separated from God. For the first time you see that only Jesus, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep, is the one who can save you from your sin. For the first time, you see that not only did he die in your place, but he also rose again from the dead so that you could be righteous and forgiven in the eyes of God. Now is the time to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that you will be saved. Now is the time to fall down before Jesus and worship him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And when you hear those words, when you hear the words that Jesus speaks in the garden that night, when you hear him say, I am, one of two responses will happen in your life. One, your heart will be warmed and filled and encouraged and strengthened and comforted because you will know that this is your king this is your lord this is your savior or you will hear those words with terror and fear when you hear those words you will not be able to remain indifferent Now, we bend the knee before our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also know that one day, everyone, every knee will bend before Christ. Everyone will fall on their face before the great I Am. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's bow our knees in prayer to him. Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you for the words we hear that come from the mouth of Jesus Christ when he says, I am. And that changes everything. It changes how we relate to ourselves, it changes how we relate to the world, and it changes how we relate to him. He is no ordinary man He is the God-man. He is 100% man and at the same time 100% God. He is our creator. He is our covenant-keeping Lord. He is the self-sufficient and self-sustaining, infinite and eternal God. There is no king like him. And so we prostrate ourselves before him. We behold him in all of his beauty and all of his glory. And we say with full hearts, we desire him above all else. And we want to live for him. Father, if there is someone here today who does not know Jesus Christ, they have not put their faith and trust in Him, they have not repented of their sin, today, would they hear those words of Jesus and Him saying, I am the great I am? And would they come to Him? Would it be a changed life a change that happens forever not a temporal change not a temporal change in like it was in these men who then got up from the dirt and arrested Jesus not like the seed that is sown on the thorny soil that is quickly choked out but a seed that is sown in fertile soil that results in abundance of life and fruitfulness for you and for your kingdom. Father, today, there's someone here who's struggling. Struggling with their allegiance. Struggling with some of the world's affairs, with the world's values. Seeking to infiltrate, take over their heart. I pray that you would give them today renewed strength to resist that temptation. Renewed strength to again deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after Christ. Father, today, may there be someone here who would say, I need again and continually to lose my life. so that they might find life. And again, rejoice in our Savior's salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.